Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by MailChimp. Guess how many businesses around the world use MailChimp? Seven million. To do what? Send email newsletters. Find out more at MailChimp.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race. This is the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre, post, yet still very racial America. You could say all that or just call this show About Race. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author of How to Be Black, and joining me here in the Panoply Studios in New York City are my co-host Tanner Colby, author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America. Hello, Tanner. Hello, sir. And Anand Girdardas, who is here filling in for our regular co-host, the wonderful boxer Raquel Cepeda, who's away on assignment for the New York Times at Havasu Falls and the Havasu Pai Reservation at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Anand is the author of, most recently, The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas. This book just won the 2015 New York Public Library Helen Bernstein Book Award for Excellence in Journalism. And a few months ago, he delivered a standing ovation receiving TED Talk on the subject of this book, A Tale of Two Americas. In true Asian-American hyperachieving fashion, he also happens to be a columnist for The New York Times. He's a new father. He's a new guest co-host with us. Welcome, Anand. How are you? Howdy. <laughs> that was perfect. Thank you for the howdy. Uh, today, we've got a Muhammad cartoon drawing contest, beautiful hafus, and a bamboo ceiling. First, though, let me check in. What's going on in your world, Tanner? How are you? I joined a community garden. You are so Brooklyn now. It is. Well, you know, kind of. Um, but basically, I we stopped by this garden, me and my wife and my son, and he like had the best time. And I realized my kid's never really been in dirt before because like we live in the city. And <laughs> yeah. like I want to know about. Not that we know about. I mean, New York City is dirt. It basically. is dirt, but not good dirt. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is his first experience with good dirt. Yeah. And I'm like, I want him to have this, you know, uh, it's basically the backyard we don't have. Um, and also because like in, in writing my book, like, uh, I became a big fan of, like, local community organizations right. as, like, a focal point where integration and cooperation can take place and how important that is. Yeah. But at the same time, I myself am not a joiner. Oh, I don't really do so groups. you kind of hypocritical. I, well, I just don't like people that much. So, but this was like, hey, I want to do this with my kid, and this is actually a chance to do, you know, what I talk about is a good thing that people should do. Yeah. So I'm going to give it a shot. So I did. I applaud you, man. But not physically, but just sort of in my head. There you go. I'm very happy. Anand, what's up with you? Um, well, I, in keeping with the theme of you know fertility in, among the co-hosts today, um, I recently had a, a, a son, to be more specific, my wife did. Um, <laughs> and it's great. And I was just thinking about you know the, the race theme. Uh, he's three quarters Indian, uh, one quarter white, uh, but he was born extremely white looking. Mm. So I, you know, I told him... Just enjoy these early weeks of <laughs> white privilege, yeah. you know, being invited to speak on panels much more often than you deserve and, and talk in class without raising your hand. Getting and things paid like that. more. But unfortunately for him, uh, it has already, the advantage is already 
faded. It's worn off. Is he getting tanner? He's getting he's getting tanner. There Boom. You go. Oh, that was an accident and, and beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And congrats on the new life in, uh, in your life. Uh, for me, uh, my laser surgery went well, and I, I survived it. There's no uh, seemingly infection or permanent damage, so my vision will be clarifying over the coming weeks. Uh, so that's an update for those folks. The, the other fun thing that happened for me this week is I went to a launch party for a TV show. The show is called Power. It's on Stars. 50 Cent is an executive producer of the show. A woman named Courtney Kemp Agbo is the creator of the show. She worked on Bernie Mac and The Good Wife. And it was just cool, man. Like, we were, this is a very midtown New York, like, Hollywood comes to New York kind of experience. And 50 Cent put on a concert after. So I got to see him live for the first time. I met two of the actors in the bathroom um, and resisted the urge to ask for selfies in the bathroom. So I'm very proud of myself for exercising some restraint. So, Tanner, why don't you uh, take us to our uh, Muhammad cartoons? What's going on there? Okay, as uh, most people are probably aware, last month on May 3rd, right-wing activist and blogger Pamela Geller, who's also the president of something called the Stop Islamization of America, I didn't know that was happening, um, and something else called the American Freedom Defense Initiative, held a Muhammad art exhibit and contest in Garland, Texas, displaying drawn images of the Prophet Muhammad. Two gunmen opened fire outside the event, injuring one of the guards on duty, and both of the assailants were shot and killed by other guards at the event. ISIS has claimed credit for the attack, and this has stoked the flames of anti-Muslim right-wing activists in the Southwest. Most notably, uh, last week, uh, former Marine John Ritzheimer, who organized an armed rally outside the Islamic Community Center in Phoenix, where the two gunmen from Texas had worshipped for a time. Ritzheimer, who claimed he was only pro-free speech and not anti-Islam, showed up in a t-shirt that said, fuck Islam, and was selling t-shirts that said, fuck Islam. And many Muslims showed up to hand out water and snacks to the people who were there to protest them, which I thought was a nice touch. So this ties in directly to Anand's great book, True American Murder and Mercy in Texas. Some of the same themes after 9-11, a white man from Dallas, Mark Stroman, uh, went nuts, started going into convenience stores and blowing away men. Immigrants. Immigrants, yeah. Anyone who he thought might be Muslim. They weren't even necessarily... He uh, called them Arabs, but he he was not successful in finding any Arabs. (laughs) Right, and this uh, man named Race from Bangladesh, who was one of the men who was shot, Uh, Ultimately came around and forgave him and tried to stop the state from executing him. Many of the themes echoed here. And I was wondering, Anna, when when all this went down in Texas and Phoenix, what was, were you like, here we go again? Were you expecting something like this? Before you get, like, when I heard these stories, I just want you to know, I thought of you. I was like, wait, Muslims, guns, Texas? Like, this is so honored. So I'm so happy, first yeah, of all, that you yeah. just think of me <laughs> whenever those keywords. I wanted you pop to know. Your... Those were like trigger yeah. words for yeah. me to think of you. Yeah, you just said Google alert directly wired into your mm-hmm. Apple Watch to your brain. Um, look, I, the, the thought that always comes to me when these things happen is um, the word mimicry. Um, one of the sad things behind stories like this is on both sides of this conflict, like ISIS on the one hand and the the self-appointed ISIS hunters of Texas on the other hand, um, it's amazing how each side mimics without realizing it the behavior they most hate in the other. Um, and so literally you had these protesters in Texas who were you know, armed to the teeth and wearing fatigues and covering their face and they looked like you know, Jihadi John from ISIS without realizing the irony of it. And similarly, ISIS um, and Al-Qaeda and all these groups which protest American militarism and the overuse of force and intervention in other people's affairs have 
become massive rackets for militarism and intervening in other people's affairs. Um, and so whatever the, f- the future uh, kind of forward motion is from here, it probably doesn't involve either of these forms of behavior. I like the idea of mimicry, also becoming that which you hate. For ISIS especially, goes so far beyond militarization. It's like their slick video production. It's their very aggressive and seemingly effective social media savvy. It's it's the embrace of all the tools that are the opposite of the caliphate that they claim to want to create, which could not exist in a world where everybody equally embraced those tools. What also popped out to me is I, the name Pam Geller kept showing up. She leads this American Freedom Defense Initiative. And anytime the word American and freedom are in a title, it's probably bullshit to begin with. It's like the opposite of that thing because you're like protesting too much. But she led this group that tried to stop the quote unquote ground zero mosque from being built, which wasn't that, right? It was a community center, an Islamic community center that had a prayer space within it. You know, she's taking out these really nasty subway ads and just, you know, oversimplified the debate to such an extreme that it's become a farce. And so as the organizer of one of these cartoon drawing contests, it was not like a good faith freedom of speech effort to like, let's see what the artistic interpretations of Muhammad really could be. It was like poking the bear in the eyes with like acid on the end of a burning stick. Wow. And then... That was vampire squid worthy. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I mean, the the difference here is because, you know, my knee-jerk sort of American free speech reaction is to, you know, we have all these legitimate sort of conflicts between free speech in the West and Islamic fundamentalism. You have Theo Van Gogh killed over Mm -hmm. his film submission. You have the death threats against South Park, the Danish newspapers publishing pictures of Muhammad, the Charlie Hebdo murders from January. And like, so... Those are people who are engaged, whether you agree with them or not, in sort of acts of cultural criticism and commentary, and in so doing, stepped on the the feet of Muslims, and the Muslims took offense, and there was retaliation. What these people are doing is they're skipping the whole cultural commentary and criticism phase, and they're just trolling Muslims for the sake of doing it. What she's doing is like the men who go on feminist websites and are so vile to women to the point where the women have to step up and say... They maybe cool it a bit, and then they get my free speech. You're taking, away. and you know, it's like, well, you just came and provoked me into the point where I had to say, "Hey, maybe calm down a bit." Yeah, people like Pam Geller end up ruining what has, you know, the the seedling of a perfectly good issue. Mm-hmm. And and so the way you began the point is exactly right. And so people like Pam Geller are counterproductive to their own, you know, goal. There's a a small sense in which they are exactly right, which is we live in a society that is very much centered on free speech and the right to say all kinds of things, including stupid things, mm-hmm. because throughout history, you know, today's stupid idea is tomorrow's governing idea. Or at least billion dollar business. Right. <laughs> and that's an important right. Um, but the way they go about it, this contingent, is so transparently bigoted that they prevent us from having the conversation. And I think there's actually a larger problem about our inability to have adult conversations about anything Mm. in America today. Poking the bear in the eye with acid or whatever you said is actually kind of our default way of talking about everything. So if I look at my Facebook feed or, or the public conversation about this, I'm hearing kind of two messages. One, this has nothing to do with Islam. Mm. And two, this has everything to do with Islam. I actually think both of those are wrong. Yeah. Um, Most thoughtful Muslims, including the top clerics in Egypt, for example, will tell you there is some problem in the larger culture of 
a billion plus people that permits a very, very small number of them to misinterpret that religion to do a set of things. Uh, the same way, to use a different analogy, in India, which has a rape problem, mm. uh, you know, there's something in the culture of 600 million men that creates an enabling environment for thousands of men to commit rape. Um, India does have a man problem. Doesn't mean all men are committing rape. Um, but we're not able to have those nuanced conversations because our style is the bear poking in the eye with acid yeah. on everything. My thought on the whole Geller-Ritzheimer thing is it really gets to uh, the Big Lebowski rule, which uh -oh. is one of the fundamental principles of American political discourse. It's a physics it's, law, isn't it? It's a physics law. Well, my, I can't take any credit for it. My friend Brendan Greeley, who works at Bloomberg, was the first person to articulate it. But there's a brilliant scene in The Big Lebowski where John Goodman's character, Walter, is like ranting and raving. He just works himself up in this rant and he's like, am I wrong? Am I wrong? Mm. And, and Jeff Bridges said, no, Walter, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. Yeah. And what we have here is we have this guy, Ritzheimer, who says, I shouldn't have to go into hiding in my, my own country for a cartoon or a T-shirt. You're right, but that doesn't mean you're not a dick. Yeah. So there are two other things that pop into my head as you guys were talking. One is there is a similar fantasy, I think, that plays out from the ISIS end of the spectrum, as you laid it out, Anand, and the Geller end of the spectrum. And it, it both involves violence. Like, ISIS would love nothing more than murder in the streets of all kinds of American cities of various uh, heretics and non-believers. And the John Ritzheimers of the world who show up, and the phrase armed rally, like, that hasn't been happening since the revolutionary times in this country. Like, a rally is in place of armed anything, mm -hmm. ideally. Like, it's, we use speech instead of weaponry because we like to consider ourselves more evolved and somehow civilized. So, but they would so love a, a violent conflict because it would prove that Islam is a problem. The other is, uh, what are we allowed to talk about and why people, especially on the left, get hyper-defensive? Like, I've been on Bill Maher's show twice in the past year. And he has a special hard-on for Islam. And when you're on that stage with someone like him, there's just no room. And I get into like a hyper-defense mode myself of like, am I going to be an ally to this group, which is taking it much more than they should from people like this who are being assholes in that moment? Does, can anyone even hear nuance in a world where you're painting a billion people as murderers and pedophiles and rapists and beheaders? I had one other question um that I think you can answer because you're an expert on it. Thank um, you. Oh, you're not. Not you're you. Not I'm pointing to the other guy. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we talk all a lot about the the influence of oil and money and America's presence in the Middle East uh, and how that keeps us entangled over there. And one of the things I think is interesting about you don't get any bigger in Texas than the oil business. And one of the reasons why so many Middle Eastern people have moved to Texas is because of the oil business there. So you have these right-wing extremists who are very anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, and so forth. But then you have the Chamber of Commerce Republicans who are obviously very much in favor of a close relationship between Texas and the Middle East. Have you seen that play out mm. in these relationships? I mean, one of the things that was very surreal for me reporting this book is going down there and... Well, you went to Texas? Went to Texas. You, I did. You made it back. I did. I, I got a special visa, and wow. um, and you know it is a an independent republic. Absolutely. Uh, and spent time not just with immigrants in general, but with a lot of immigrants who had either been shot or had people in their families murdered. Um, and most of these people had not left Texas, hmm. uh, and really loved Texas and tried to like sell me on the idea of the dream in Texas. Um, and so one of the things I wrote about in the, in the book is this kind of extreme duality of 
the specific violence that these immigrants had experienced on the virtue on the, you know on the basis of their skin color um presumably because they were in a place like Texas and eastern Dallas specifically um but also the fact that there was another kind of tolerance that they had found in Texas, which is, I started to understand it was different than the tolerance of New York. The mm. tolerance of New York is like everybody's here and there's different colors on the street and it's, it's this kind of aggressive embrace of tolerance. Yeah. And it, in Texas, it was the tolerance of kind of casualness and convenience. It was mm. the fact that you could kind of show up from Pakistan, get a really cheap house, pay very low taxes, live in this kind of far away from everybody else. You're in your car the whole time. And, and it's this kind of easy, you don't feel intimidated in restaurants. You don't have to learn some complex social code. There isn't much of a complex social code. Uh, and a lot of these immigrants had a very different perception of where they lived than I would have imposed on them. And mm. they frankly loved it. Okay, well, we want to hear your thoughts as well on this interesting and complicated topic. Give us a, shoot us an email at showaboutrace.com. Uh, find us on Facebook, go to our website and let us know what you think. And we will air your thoughts and feedback next week uh, on the B-side. Boom. And now let's, uh, let's hear from the people who pay for all this. Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by MailChimp. My Own Business is one of the 7 million that uses MailChimp to send our email newsletters and deliver high fives to our communities. Now, the people behind this company, they admire projects that spread creative empathy in the world and something they like to call creative chaos on the web. MailChimp also goes above and beyond distributing hats for cats and small dogs. Find out more at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, send better email, y'all, because we can now. All right, so I want to take us to this story of uh, beautiful uh, Hafus. And, and I apologize to Raquel Cepeda, our, our more permanent co-host, uh, who Anand is sitting in for today. She loves these discussions of, of multiracial non-binary-ness, uh, as well as colorism and attractiveness. And the news just, you know, got in, uh, overlapped with her absence. So I'm sure we'll come back to it. Raquel, on the record, I'm sorry. With that said, uh, let's go to Japan. Uh, there's a major development in the world of pageants, which is not a phrase I ever thought I would say. Uh, <laughs> but in the Miss Universe competition in Japan, a woman named Ariana Miyamoto just won. She is referred to in Japanese culture as a hafu, which is she's half Japanese and half something else. And in this case, the something else is half black American. She was raised in Japan, totally fluent in Japanese, which she explained in this New York Times article, Shocks. Many people, they hand her English menus. When she goes to restaurants, they praise her use of chopsticks. And she wants to use her new platform as Miss Universe Japan to, quote, challenge the definition of being Japanese. We had this moment in the U.S. with the election of Barack Obama. And we thought many that he would usher in this post-racial fantasy because he was both. He was yes and. He was black and white based on magazine covers and photo spreads from Slate, who helps put this show on, as well as National Geographic and others, there's a big celebration of more Barack Obamas. Maybe he wasn't enough, but if we had millions more mixed-race beauties, these, uh, these beautifully tan, honey-tinted uh, people, that America would escape its racist history through a mixed-race future uh, and have all sorts of lovely, lovely tan and brown folks doing that. Christina Wong at XO Jane wrote about this recently, painting the fantasy like this, quote, one day when all the races are mixed together and we can't tell what anyone is anymore, there won't be racism. All our cultures will blend together and the babies 
will be beautiful. Uh, and even more recently in BuzzFeed, Sharon Chang uh, had a piece whose headline was, This Mocha Caramel Honey Post-Racial Fantasy is Making Me Sick. Uh, her big argument, saying mixed-race people are better or the best because of the way they look, hardly breaks from racism's insidious tradition of racing the group at the top at the expense of all the other group's humanities. What is it about America's embrace of multiracial sex and, and procreation as compared to what's happening in Japan with this pageant winner and other more monocultural societies where race is identified so much more strongly with a definition of what it means to be a member of that nation? Uh, what are you guys seeing in the hopes, the passive hopes of an American public so excited about beautiful brown babies saving us from ourselves? The name Sally Hemings should warn us against any sort of prediction that mm. sex on its own uh, across racial boundaries leads to progress. You know, I'm, as far as I know, of mostly one race, holding a son who is sort of of two, surrounded by parents and children, by the way, men and women, yeah. so that's changing also, yeah. taking care of kids who in a very large number of cases actually have no racial resemblance to them. And some of that sure may be that they're their kids. Some of them may be nanny yeah. and and child, but some of them are clearly parents. Yeah. And it's really fascinating to see that. I also think that this stuff is slow mm. and that it doesn't eradicate hatred. Some of the most hateful places in America have a reasonable amount of mixing and it doesn't change fundamental things about the job situation or racism that's embedded in all kinds of institutions. And there's a way in which people sleep with someone at night and are free to discriminate against people like them during the day, and those things coexist. I think it can go one or two ways, and I think it's way too soon to tell. I mean, the, the question here and what these two articles sort of get at, or the many articles that we looked at sort of get at, is is this embrace of mixed-race people the, ero the beginning of the erosion of white supremacy, or is it white supremacy sort of building a buffer for itself mm. uh, in order to extend its bulwark and stay right where it is. I don't know. I, th I think actually both of those things are happening. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's always that's been, that was always true in Louisiana. You had black people, you had free people of color who were mostly Creole, uh, who were very stratified. It was like a buffer zone. Yeah. And then and then you had white people at the top. One of the complaints in Sharon Chang's article was that, oh, this is sort of like entry-level multiculturalism 101 for white people, and they're just... And it's like, well, is that necessarily so wrong? If it takes Halle Berry to get us to Lupita Nyong'o, is that a bad thing? Is, is it a process where we're building a bridge yeah. from one end of the spectrum to the other? First of all, this, this objectification that mixed-race people are like inherently more beautiful is because the mixed-race people that bubble up through the media are the most beautiful. And so we're looking at all these honey, mocha-colored, whatever. And that was definitely a trend in advertising in the 2000s mm -hmm. uh, when there was this huge push. You need more diversity in your ads. It's like, well, I got 30 seconds. I got one person I can have driving the car. I'm just going to put an ethnically ambiguous person there, and I can cover all my bases. Yeah. And so there's definitely a trend of that uh, in advertising. And what did it do for Benetton? When's the last time you saw a Benetton store? Yeah. Really? Right. Uh, do they still exist? Uh, it's those mixed-race people killed the brand. <laughs> or or did, did Benetton colonize the whole market with right. mixed-race marketing, which is acceptable from Cheerios to Pepsi to every other product? Like, they, they were pioneers, maybe ahead of their time. Right. But we are living in a post-Benetton world. But to the extent that... Is it an erosion of, of, of white beauty standards and, and the monolith of the media in this country and, and in Japan? Yeah, and, and I think that's a good thing. It's just a question of is it going to go right or is it going to go left? I think this is an area where 
it's easy to be tough on ourselves mm-hmm. as a country, and we have a lot to be tough on ourselves about. And traveling to a bunch of different places, I think we're still actually better on this issue than most places in the world. I mean, the Brazilians love to talk about how colorblind they are, but you go to Brazil, like everybody sitting at the restaurant tables is white, and everybody serving you is black. Just because you don't acknowledge that doesn't mean you're post-racial. Yeah, and. In India, uh, going back as an Indian American, looking fully Indian, there was no way in which I would ever be accepted as being Indian if I had wanted to, because they didn't have the context of like who my family was and what I'd done, and they hadn't been able to kind of fact check an entire history. Um, you were still a foreigner. I'm still a foreigner. Yeah. Eric Liu wrote a great book about um, his relationship to. China. It's called the Chinaman's Chance. And he talks about, he made this very provocative point um, that America is extraordinary because if Eric Liu, only one generation removed from China, wanted to become Chinese, mm-hmm. he's only lapsed for like a 30-year period of history. Out of 6,000. There's, there's no way yeah. in his life, nothing he could do to become Chinese. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are special in that way as a country. I spoke with a friend who is Japanese and was raised there, lives in the U.S. now, and she grew up in Tokyo among a bunch of halfus. She described kind of two sides of this that they experienced. So the downside was for her half-American friends, she's described one couldn't even get a job in a McDonald's because she wasn't Japanese enough to work at McDonald's, which is American, wow. which is such a nice and cultural And not so colonial. committed to purity in any no, way. Right. But such a culturally cultural colonialist way of of thinking and mm-hmm. having been thought at. But the other was this exotification of the half-American because of Japan, Japan's relationship to us and how we kind of took them under our wing, as she described, after you know blowing them to oblivion in many ways. There is a, you're elevated. You must be cooler. You speak English. Like, you have some access. I'm suspicious. I'm suspicious of the idea that we can fuck our way to a better less racial future because not only of the great past and the Sally Hemings, but I, I talked to my sister who is multiracial. We have different fathers. Her father is half Filipino and we share the same mother who is black American as far as we can tell. And she said, you know, I was biracial before it was cool. She was mm-hmm. born in the late sixties. She was really raised in the seventies and early eighties and so used to being interrogated by people. And now all these thought pieces and slideshows celebrating her exoticism are out. But she has a new response for people that she shared with me, which is like when people say, where are you from? No, where are you from? She says, what is that going to do for you? Uh, and puts them on the spot for such an invasive line of questioning and, and sort of the fatigue that she has of trying to be the puzzle that someone else mm-hmm. solves. And there's, I think, a version of the future, which is not the one or two that you let out, Tanner, but a third, which is we have a massively larger number of awkward conversations because of this. So I I know your sister and love her, but I'm going to actually strenuously disagree with her. Oh, good, good. And it's something I've thought about a lot as someone who's been asked, where are you from, Mm -hmm. a lot. And I think those of us who represent these new, more complex backgrounds that are becoming the center of gravity of America but weren't um, can be a little bit humorless about this and a little unsympathetic to the fact that for people who have, relatively speaking, simple backgrounds, Mm -hmm. there's curiosity. Sometimes there's racism, but there's curiosity. There's a lack of familiarity with this new world that's coming. There's often a lack of exposure to the world that 
people who've had complex backgrounds have. And I'm very aware of, I think of a scene coming out of the, a jazz club in New York a few years ago where it was a kind of a homeless guy trying to take money for like closing our cab door. And when I refused, he was like, go back to your country. And I'm thinking like, I don't want to go back to Cleveland. But I think of another situation where there's a manager of a P.C. Richards, one of those kind of stores, who came to install a stove in our house, and we're standing in the kitchen. He says, where are you from? And my first thought was, ugh, there he, your sister's instinct. Mm-hmm. And I decided to go with it. I knew he didn't want Cleveland and Ohio, even though that's the right answer. And I said, you know, I'm Indian origin. And the next thing he said was, I wondered, you know, because my brother married an Indian woman, and she is just the light of our family. And, we, and I think... Sometimes we miss having those conversations and we miss the human motivation behind those questions. And there are a lot more well-meaning people than we sometimes realize. I I will grant you the well-meaningness of people. I will also suggest that there is a difference in the, you know, your relatively monolithic story of like being having parents from India and a multiracial story where you're being asked to do this dance and not just answer a question but explain your existence. And what is the exact recipe and uh, proportion of each group? And can you prove that you're black over here? Can you prove that you're kind of Asian over there? To kind of have this right. universal passport be checked off by people. And that level of proof is different, yeah. I think, than curiosity. Well, I think, you know, this whole system of white supremacy, going back to what we talked about last week, is based upon these ideas of racial classification. Yeah. And this new generation of mixed race people are throwing a wrench in that system. And I think sometimes it probably hurts to be the wrench. You know, and it, it, it sucks to be that one person who's shoved into that circumstance of having to explain it. But at the same time, fragmenting the old order yeah. and breaking it down is ultimately a good thing. And I agree with your sentiment that we're not going to fuck our way to a mixed race, post-racial future. But everyone says this, you know, mixed race marriage isn't going to end racism. Protest marches aren't going to. No one thing is going to do it. It's just a question of is this something that is going to play its part in changing the landscape. It will change the landscape. The question is, is it going to change it for good or for ill? And I think that's within the parameters of how we handle it. Well, I will agree it's a contributing factor. I think it needs to be coupled with, (laughs) see what I did there? Mm. Uh, Active conversation and efforts to fight racism, not just sex and and definitions uh, of attractiveness to fight racism. And part of that uh, smarter conversation is with us on this podcast. And part of that is with you, our listeners. So share with us your thoughts. Will we fuck our way to a post-racial future? Are these questions of curiosity or interrogations demanding proof? And what will the implications be of a larger population of multiple box-checking, elevator-button-smashing Raquel Cepeda's uh, in the future? You can send us an audio note in addition to text. So if you have a smartphone, record a short little something, 30 seconds, 60 max, and shoot us an email, showaboutrace at gmail.com. It would actually be nice to hear your voices accompanied by your thoughts. As usual, Facebook and Twitter, Show About Race is our handle on both of those platforms. Thank you for being a part of this discussion, and we're going to move ahead to one more topic. Okay, so there have been a lot of stories in the news lately about the high bar and the challenges for high-achieving Asian and Asian-American students when applying to highly selective colleges and universities. The biggest stat that's getting tossed around is a 2009 Princeton University study of seven top colleges that concluded an Asian-American applicant needed an average 1460 SAT score to be admitted, while whites with a similar academic qualifications needed a 1320, Hispanics needed 1190, and blacks needed uh, 1010. 
All right, so there are two really interesting tactics that people have been using to deal with this problem uh, that have come out in the past month. One, conservative anti-affirmative action activist Edward Blum, who is the guy behind the Fisher versus Texas case that went to the Supreme Court last year, uh, is using a group called Students for Fair Admission to sue Harvard University for having a racial quota system that uh, he says effects, effectively puts a cap on Asian enrollment and is therefore illegal. And the other somewhat more creative response, you could say, is coming from these new college admission consultants who are helping Asian students, quote, according to the Boston Globe, appear less Asian on their applications. Brian Taylor is the director of Ivy Coach. James Chen runs a business called Asian Advantage College Consulting. And both of them charge a lot of money to help Asian students do things like de-emphasize their interest in science and math, promote liberal artsy things like theater and dance, and to basically de-racialize their college essays, like don't talk about your parents coming home on a boat. Have they not seen Asians breakdancing before? That's uh, very Asian. I don't know. All right. So Those people all had this uh, consulting service. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they all went to a consultant. What strikes me as interesting is behind the two different approaches is, one, you have these people filing this lawsuit, and it's this you know, core group of really over-competitive people who have very much oversubscribed to the theory of the meritocracy, which is, I got the test score, I'm supposed to get in, the rules say do X and you get Y, and I did X, so I deserve to get Y, therefore you must revise the rules to let me in because I followed the rules. And this other group of people is sort of like saying, well, we recognize that it's not really a meritocracy, and the meritocracy isn't what we've been telling people it is, and so we're telling you now how to play the game that is inherently unfair by following these other rules and don't just think because you follow the rules that you're going to get in. So is this a good idea to tell people, should we try and enforce the meritocracy more rigidly or should we tell people, hey, it's not a meritocracy. Here's what you got to do. I uh, love the second approach more. It's more creative. It's more fun. I went to Harvard College uh, and survived and lasted there for four years. And I can tell you it's not a meritocracy in full. It is a mix. The idea that you checked certain criteria off and therefore deserve a thing, I think elevates a school like Harvard far beyond what it deserves. 95% of the people who apply to Harvard don't get in and are not owed some like Harvard education because of that. And the vast majority of them do great. Some of them probably do better for not going to Harvard. They kind of put this thing in their eye that says this is the best thing ever and it's not the best thing ever. There are people who are miserable there. There are people who bomb out of there. The people who have horrible experiences because they got what they want and it turns out it's not what they needed. These universities are black boxes just like the Google search algorithm and the Apple iTunes ranking and you can start to get close to gaming the system and they'll change the game a little bit and that's their prerogative. So it's much more interesting to me to say to someone, be interesting, be yourself. Mm-hmm. And 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 don't subscribe to the gamification of education and the idea that without this prized piece of paper, you are less than. If the message we send people is you have to go to Harvard and this is how you have to do it, then it says the vast majority of the world is doomed and has no hope and no opportunity and somehow is even cursed to like a terrible future. And I think that's a bad message for people who don't go to college and do great or go to some other school and and have a beautiful life uh, ahead of them. First of all, I'm heartened by this story because it explains why I got rejected from eight out of the nine uh, colleges that I applied to, (laughs) um, which is a true story. And I had always thought it was my terrible personality and D plus in acting. Um, But it turns out it was just my my race, which is great. (laughs) Uh, So I feel good about that. Um, This is a classic story of 
competing goods. Mm. Um, and I think we would all acknowledge that merit is a good, yeah. but not an absolute good, um, and that diversity is a good and not an absolute good. Mm -hmm. um, and we recognize that. And they have to be balanced against each other. And like you know, many things in society, uh, two goods in this case clash. Um, and if we have to take these institutions a little bit at their word, if they feel they need to do certain things to create an environment that educates people in what it's like to actually be part of a global world, I actually defer to them. I mean, it, I, you know, and we have to be able to make the distinction between what they're doing and like what 19th century colleges did to like keep out races. Just because it's some of the same kind of effect of a quota, it is not morally the same. Yeah, right. Um, it is in the interest of something that's actually very, very different and very 21st century. Well, before also, before okay. admission was in, in, like entirely based on these vague notions of character, which is mm -hmm. used to exclude Jews and other people. It was like, who's your daddy? Right. right. And then we created this system that we said was going to be objective and it's just about the best. And now the cracks in that system are starting to show. And what we're basically saying is, is kind of like, well, we're going to trust you to go back to a subjective system and not be horribly racist with it anymore. I mean, is that like really what we're saying? That's definitely part of what I heard from Anand. And I think my experience and just perspective, fuck the experience, the idea that you can even define what best is. That I can define what best is. That an SAT score doesn't capture a person. I can define what best is. What is best? I had a misguided notion of what is best because I was a big believer in the meritocracy my whole life. I oh, tested well. I got good grades. I know it was, yeah. it was made me great hair. For a long Your time. parents let Excellent. you believe that. Yeah, really good hair. But like I thought that I was going to come to New York and I was going to submit my resume and show people my writing samples. They're going to say, you're a talented young man. We're going to give you a oh, job. And of course, that's so it, sad. I know it didn't work like that at all. The definition of what is best in terms of a, we are a meritocracy, but the merit that's being measured is your ability to work the levers of a system that is inherently unfair is the skill that is being measured. And that is what these consultants are saying to these young Asian people. And it's what I wish someone had said to me when I was 18. And not just, hey, work hard, get good grades. It was like, no, here's how the game is played, right? Nobody really told me how the game was played until yeah. I was like 30. And I met some of the right editors and agents in the publishing industry where I worked. And they said, no, no, come in from the cold. This is, this is how the game works. And we're going to show you how to play the game. And this has been the frustration of the bamboo ceiling. You have this portion of the Asian community, not all of it, which has oversubscribed to the meritocracy, mm -hmm. has taken all the tests, excelled by all the measurements, and then they get to college or they get out of college and they realize, oh, wait, it's not about that. Well, this And this is a case of people taking America too seriously, mm -hmm. like of believing the bullshit, of, of like taking the advertisement literally, that you can come here and be whatever you want as long as you work hard and pay your taxes. It's like, no. Like, that's not how America works. It's probably really? Not. I got to call my parents immediately. I know. And I, I think they should know by now. It is a sobering truth. I don't think it's only that, though. I also think there's an element of randomness and odds that are not being discussed in this. Mm -hmm. When 5% of an applicant pool is admitted to a school like Harvard, and they went after Harvard, so they exposed themselves to these raw numbers, no one is guaranteed anything. The odds are you're not getting in. Right. When, and when Harvard over-promotes itself to get those application numbers up, to mm -hmm. so be able to say we're super selective, they create a perverse system of expectations on the part of people who right. work really, really hard and do the thing that the advertisements told them, which is like get a perfect SAT, play some instrument really, really well, do these extracurriculars, professionalize your child. Harvard could have a whole class of just valedictorians. 
They could have a whole class of just athletes who are really smart. Mm -hmm. They could have a whole class just men, of just people women. from just... Texas right. or California or New York, certainly. They are using their discretion to create some mix, mm -hmm. to not just go with a formula, because yeah. a formula is perverse in, right. in the case of that kind of thing. And state. I think at, at the heart of the point you're making yeah. is a simple, on the other side of the argument, a simple category error. Um, of what a college is. Yeah. And I think part of the weirdness of what a college is, is the student is both the audience and the performer in mm. a show, right? You you are the audience in the sense that you're going there to, to get a show of education over right. four years and learn a bunch of stuff. To suck up a but, bunch but of But you're the performer because for all the other people, your story, yeah. the things you learn, working with them on group projects is actually part of the performance for them, the audience. Yeah. And I think that actually makes it more acceptable to think about how do you have a diverse cast of performers. Oh, it's maybe less acceptable yeah. mm -hmm. to engineer the diversity of a simple audience. Yeah. But it is acceptable to care and curate the performers. And I also think, as we discussed uh, on episode two, uh, when Mindy Kaling's brother was trying to game this system also to his own yeah. ends, uh, the, the people bringing this lawsuit fundamentally understand what affirmative action was, which is that the purpose of affirmative action was always to protect the white institution, not to help the student of color. And if you think about it from that point of view, Harvard's doing what Harvard needs to do to be Harvard, mm -hmm. right? And I guarantee you, even if these people take their case all the way to the Supreme Court and win and are triumphant, the number of Asian students at Harvard will not change. It will stay about the same because, or you're right, the algorithm will just shift yeah. to adjust because Harvard will shift to do whatever it needs to do to stay Harvard. That is the truest shit we have said on the show in a while. And, and Harvard is a proxy for America. Uh, I think it scales up to that level in many ways. If you have thoughts about Harvard or anything else, uh, shoot us a line at showaboutrace at gmail.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter and let us know what you think. And we will see you back here in two weeks with your thoughts and ideas. Uh, now we will uh, start to close this off with our Yo! Check This Out segment. Uh, Tanner, do you have anything you want people to check out? So I'm reading a great book right now. It's not actually out until, I think, July 22nd or something like that, but I got an advanced Tanner's copy. a VIP. I know. I got, a, I got <laughs> an advanced nerd. screener. It's called Our Man in Charles. Charleston, and it's about Robert Bunch, who was the British consul in Charleston when the Civil War broke out. And of course, England was in a precarious position with the Confederacy and that politically they were vehemently anti-slavery, but economically they were dependent upon the cotton of the South for all of their textile mills and industry. So that was one of the big questions of the Civil War was where was England and Britain going to fall uh, with the Confederacy? And this guy, this consul in, in, in Charleston went down as a Confederate sympathizer because he sort of had to play all those sympathies to keep his position and not get you know killed or tarred and feathered and run out of town. But uh, as new documents have come out and this book uh, tells the story of, he was actually a double agent for the British government. He was spying oh, on all of the high-level Confederate operatives in Charleston and sending messages back to Britain to make sure don't come in on this, don't recognize the Confederacy. These people are crazy. This is horrible. Uh, it's a great read. It is another book about slavery with a white protagonist. I'm going to apologize for that. <laughs> um, but it's a great read. If you're interested in sort of the macro political diplomatic dimensions of the Civil War, uh, you can pre-order it now and it'll be out in July. Uh, I'm going to tag that with uh, something people can do while they wait for this book to come out in five or six weeks. Watch Turn. It's a show on AMC, also on Netflix, the first season. It can fill your time. It's about the first uh, surveillance operation spying uh, in the U.S. Uh, during Revolutionary War times. So a lot of white people in that, too. 
Uh, but I'll flip it and, and point you guys to a Kickstarter. Rewrite the Code. It's a documentary project called Project Diane. This is a 15-minute documentary that explores uh, a topic near and dear to all of us and many of you, which is the intersection of race and gender, in this case, within the world of technology. Uh, in 2014, $48 billion in venture capital funded businesses. 0.0001% of that went to startups led by black women. This tells the story of 300 of them who were interviewed to put this together. Project Diane is a reference to Diane Nash, uh, who many of us were introduced to by the film Selma, but students of civil rights history will be familiar with her very heavy lifting uh, as, a, as a leader in that movement. You can find the documentary project on Kickstarter, short URL link bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, slash rewrite the code doc. And we'll, of course, have it on showaboutrace.com in our show notes. Anand, do you have something that you would like our community to check out? Um, yeah, I have, I have three very quick ones. I recently got to meet and therefore discovered the work of Russell Brand, the British comic. And I haven't been so impressed by someone in a long time. And I think he's thinking about, you know, what can we belong to and, and believe in in a world that's atomized and secularized and doing it with humor in a way that I just find extraordinary. Wonderful new TED Talk came out by Esther Perel about why people cheat, about mm. infidelity. And, uh, so not on tests to get into Harvard, but in relationships. No, but if you do that, it actually helps you with your opportunity to cheat in uh, matrimony as well. Nice. Um, and, and the answer that she gives is that it's actually not about the other person, but to recover lost versions of ourselves that we miss and mourn. Um, and finally, I've fallen in love with the Scandinavian writer Knausgaard, who's um, written this six-volume, 3,600-page biography of a totally banal Did Norwegian. you say 3,600 pages? Yes, and had the gall to, to title it My Struggle, which in Norwegian is Mein Kampf. I thought about it for this show because while it has nothing to do with race because it's from Norway, um, <laughs> it is about looking at yourself yeah. with a kind of honesty, a brutality of honesty um, that I think if more of us were able to do, we would make an enormous amount of headway in these conversations. Have you read the 3600? I've read the first of the six books. Are you going to go all the way? Uh, we're going to do one with each child we have. <laughs> <laughs> Are you reading it to the child? Uh, I thought about that, but it is not that kind of book. All right. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing. It's about his hatred of his father, so for me, <laughs> right, you don't want to plant right, that right. seed. Yeah. Let that evolve naturally. Right. Good, good. Thanks for sharing. Uh, thank everyone for listening. Our producer today is A.C. Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And you can find the links to the things we've been talking about. I know a lot of you have worried. You need not worry anymore. Showaboutrace.com is your resource in between podcasts when you're alone, huddled on Ellis Island, wearing your Lakota t-shirt, wondering how can I engage in race? Do it on our website, follow up on all the readings we have been recommending, and share your stories, feedback, and thoughts with us. Showaboutrace at gmail.com, a text or audio message. Showaboutrace on Twitter and Facebook. And check out the B-side. You might hear your own name and in the future voice represented. 
That's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race on behalf of Tanner Colby and our amazing guests slash guest host, author, New York Times, Asian-American phenom, Anand Girdadas. I'm Baratunde Thurston, and we won't stop until racism is over.